Hello and welcome to this press conference for Rome Life Forum. Rome Life Forum is a conference which has happened here in Rome since 2014. It is quite historical as a meeting of leaders, Catholic leaders on life and family, who have stood here in this very place, in this very city, standing for the truth of faith on life and family, which has been so diluted and confused from right here in Rome. When we had our first Rome Life Forum in 2014, there were some 70, 75 pro-life leaders from all around the world. And they, we got together in a, in a Roman circle, basically, and talked about what the issues most concerning to you. Coming from all over the world, we thought we'd hear about different legislations against life, against the family. But the number one concern was what was coming from Rome. We had lost the Pope. In many of our countries, bishops would be not really all that friendly with pro-life leaders, but you always had the Pope. The Pope always had your back. John Paul II was such a fierce defender of life, you always felt supported. It was the same under Benedict, but it drastically, drastically changed in the last 10 years. But ever since then, we've been here as a Roman Forum to stand for the unchanging and unchangeable truth of the one holy Roman Catholic Church. And so we are very well represented here with speakers from all over the world. And uh, we want to start with one of the places on earth that really retains the faith in the teaching that has been most attacked, and that is on the traditional family. So it is my honor to introduce our first speaker, Honorable Lucy Akello. She is a parliamentarian in Uganda, and she is part of the Pro-Life Parliamentary Caucus, Honorable Lucy Akello. Thank you, John and uh, the press, and my colleagues who are here. I want to start with reading a Bible verse, and then I'll make my statement. And it is in Matthew 16:18. And uh, I'll not read the whole thing, but it says, And I tell you, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth <coughs> shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth shall be lost in heaven. This for me is my opening statement, and it is on that basis that I stand firm as one of those who comes here to say no to whatsoever is um, to condemn the synod on synod's departure from the teachings of the church as revealed by the Holy Scriptures. The Catholic Church has stood the test of time since time immoral. It's my duty to speak out to the things that will divide the church handed over to us by Jesus himself. In Africa, and in the case of Uganda, we received and welcomed the missionaries 
who brought to us the gospel. In 1877, we had the church missionary societies that brought in the gospel through the, the armed gun of the Protestant church. And immediately in 1879, the white fathers came and brought to us the gospel. The two rivaled, the Anglican and the, the, the Catholic rivaled. But one thing that united them was the fact that they preached what, what resonated with the African values and practices. And these, these were received warmly by the Africans in Uganda by the then King Motesa. They gave them land. They allowed them to do their work. And this is where we come from. We received the gospel because it resonated with our practices, with our values. The Uganda matters, I think you've heard about them. The Uganda matters were killed by one king called Mwanga, who wanted to force them, and I want to underline it, he wanted to force them into homosexuality act. Because this was the king who was practicing this. They rejected this act because one, it was against, it was against their practice and values as Africans, and secondly, the new religion that they had been taught, that is Christianity. So both was against the act of homosexuality, and they allowed to shed their blood. Today in Uganda, the Christian faith grew because of the blood that the Uganda martyrs shed. Every 3rd of June, if you come to Uganda, you will see millions of people gathered in one place to celebrate the life of the Uganda martyrs who gave up their life, to say no to acts which Jesus rejected and no to acts which were forbidden in the African culture. Why am I concerned? Because religious beliefs, many African Catholics adhere to these traditional teachings of the church, which are based on interpretation of the Bible. We believe that the teachings on the issues such as abortion and homosexuality are in accordance with the faith we have practiced for generations. Our cultural belief often places a strong emphasis on family and traditional gender roles. I am a mother, I am a woman, nothing will ever change that. Nothing, completely nothing. In my culture, when I conceive, I don't need, I don't even need to, 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 to go announcing. Once they know I have conceived, I don't even need to wait for my stomach to protrude, protrude for you to know that Lucy is pregnant. If by, by, by bad luck I lose this pregnancy, I will give this little baby, this innocent baby, the best burial any other human being will be accorded to. And that is how much we attach life to these innocent children. The threat to the African values. African societies generally prioritize the importance of family units. In African culture, we never had orphans because we had a setting. And this is exactly what Jesus taught us, that we must love ourselves as we love, you know, love yourself as, uh, as you uh, love others as you love yourself. Social conservatism. African Catholic faith groups hold conservative views on social issues. 
We believe that the Christ teachings align with our values and preferences. We feel that changes in the child policies through the Synod on seniority will be unwelcome departure from these conservative positions. And then moral concerns concerned. Many African Catholics believe that issues such as abortion and homosexuality go against still our ethical principle, uh, principles. I believe, and I go back to the scripture that I read, this is a church that was handed over to us by Jesus Christ himself. The key was given. I want to believe that we will not reach a point where a division of policies will end up this, I mean, fragmentating our, you know, our, our church, our beautiful Catholic church that was left over to us. I traveled all the way from Uganda, hundreds of thousands of kilometers to Rome. The Western brought, the Western countries brought us religion. You were the missionary. Today, me, Lucy, I live alone my title. I am, I'm living, I'm putting aside my title as a member of parliament. But I come to Rome today as a missionary. Today I am here as a missionary. And that is why I have traveled all the way here. Otherwise, I would be very comfortable sitting in Africa, sitting in Uganda, in Kampala, to enjoy my very nice food. But today I am here as a missionary because you brought religion to us and it has impacted our lives. Today I come here as a missionary. Thank you so much. And it's now my privilege to introduce to you Michael Matz, one of the great fighters for tradition in America. I think many know him uh, from his TV show right now on YouTube, which is very famous, also from the newspaper. But he's one of the members of the oldest family in America defending tradition, running the news, oldest Catholic newspaper in the country. And he has a legacy of tradition that's unequaled in America. Please welcome the great defender of the traditional faith from America, Michael Matt. Thank you so much, Sean Henry. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, the press for being here. Um, I want to make uh, just two, two points that I'm going to be speaking about just briefly, but that I want you to have as the takeaway for me. Number one, what happened here this week is just the beginning. It is certainly not over. It's just the beginning. And number two, the treatment of homosexuality, the potential for the discussion about uh, blessed gay unions, has everything to do with undermining marriage, and most importantly for everyone in, in our audience who's seeing these videos or hearing us today, it has to do with your children. Heterosexually, normal people are going to be under massive moral assault if at the highest levels of the Catholic Church they're seriously discussing blessing one of the sins that Christ had for vengeance. Those are the two points. Over and above that, in his October on appeal to authority, so it can't be said that we are just here opinionating, in his October 24th interview with Edward Penton of the National Catholic Register, Gerhard Cardinal Muller noted that at the Synod on Synodality, quote, all is being turned around so that now we must be open to homosexuality and the ordination of women. If you analyze it, 
All is about converting us to these two beings. Now, His Eminence is using, in my opinion, the word converting with purpose and forethought, because that has to do with what's going to happen to the church over the next 12 months, converting, moving us to a different position, the Catholic world. This first stage of the Synod is all about converting the Catholic world to new moral realities, heretofore never seen in the history of the church, in the history of Christianity. I intentionally am wearing, this is especially for people uh, back home, I'm intentionally wearing this press pass so that I can attest to something that's extremely important because we're seeing a lot of people on YouTube this morning who are crowing that nothing happened that was all that serious at the Synod. I recognize some of you, members of the press, who were in the Vatican press hall over the past 10 days, past week, and you know very well what's happening here. Many people ask questions, many journalists ask questions. Why have we not discussed uh, uh, married clergy? Why have we not discussed blessing gay unions at, at the small breakout meetings? The answer from the official representatives of this synod was always the same. We are here at this synod to discuss synodality. The topic of this year's synod is synodality. They insisted on it. Father James Martin just today stood on the rooftop of the Jesuit building and said it again to the world on YouTube that this was all about synodality, not the specifics, because Cardinal Muller is quite right, in my opinion. It's a conversion process between now and next year. 2024 synod on synodality is where these specifics will be answered. So those people who are on YouTube saying, nothing happened, I'm sorry friends, they have no idea from the United States or from anywhere else what's actually going on here. If they're just looking at that final document, the 40 page document, they have no idea what the agenda is. Ladies and gentlemen of the press, we've been in that press hall this week, you know very well what this agenda is, and we all have an obligation to put the world and the church on notice of what that agenda truly is. It's all about October 2024. The plan is to use the synodal process to convert the world to these new realities. <clears throat> Why? Because overcoming 2,000 years of Bible-based Catholic moral theology is going to take time. Remember, friends, this is all about two words, equity and inclusion. This is all about the Great Reset. The Catholic Church is being accused in her traditional manifestation, traditional teaching, of being what they call religious supremacism, guilty of religious supremacism. So if the Catholic Church holds position on the ordination of women, for example, on feminism, for example, it is at odds with the mainstream position. Or if the Catholic Church has a position on homosexuality that is at odds with the mainstream globalist agenda, the Catholic Church must change. So everything that we're seeing here is about an agree agreement of the church at the highest levels to comply with this idea of equity and inclusion. To not allow women to be ordained is exclusion, not inclusion. And so these things are gonna to have to change. But the question on homose of homosexuality, the church is very clear, and this is what has to change. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 2357, says that homosexual acts are intrinsically disordered, <clears throat> they are contrary to the natural law, and under no circumstances can they be approved. We know this, but it's important to reassert this because this is the change, the, the teaching that has to change if the synodal process is going to happen, if we are to become a synodal church. How can the church offer God's blessings 
on gay unions or unrepentant gay persons without blasphemously asking God to bless intrinsically disordered and mortally sinful acts. It is impossible. The discussion itself at this synod, therefore, is a scandal according to how scandal is defined by the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Blessing gay unions is not mentioned, as I said, in the final document of the synod, but this topic is certainly on the synodal docket, <clears throat> if you will. In his October 2nd answer to the dubia raised by Cardinal Burke and the other cardinals on the question of blessing so-called gay unions, Pope Francis himself notes that the Catholic Church, he says, in pursuit of pastoral prudence, should discern if there are ways of giving blessings to homosexual persons that do not alter the church's teaching on marriage. This is a red herring. This has nothing to do with marriage, and I think Pope Francis knows that it has nothing to do with marriage. This concerns the synodal discussion itself, the discussion, and our children are hearing this discussion, that even in Rome, at the highest levels of the Catholic Church, there is a discussion going on about blessing those who are engaged in sexual intercourse outside of marriage, which, since the Catholic Church rejects homosexual same-sex marriage, is an impossibility. Whatever we are blessing here is going to take place, the acts are going to take place outside of the marital union, obviously. So how can pastors now, or one year from now, bless those whose lifestyles includes extramarital, extramarital acts that can under no circumstances be, be approved by the church. It cannot, and so the church teaching must change if we are to have a synodal church. Furthermore, how could such blessings, this is important, I'll close on this, how could such blessings not be regarded by our children, by the children of the world, heterosexual, normal children, young people, how could it not be regarded as the Catholic Church closing a blind eye to fornication in general? If homosexual unions can be blessed, then simple logic dictates that heterosexual unions with acts that are being committed outside of marriage can be blessed as well. And that's the message that the world, the young people of the world are going to receive by all this talk about blessing gay unions. Any synodal talk of blessing gay unions signals, in other words, a sea change. That the Catholic Church no longer takes seriously her own moral teachings, prohibiting cohabitation, sex outside of marriage, and fornication. There is no other takeaway. So friends, brace yourselves for the synodal proselytism that will take place, and as Cardinal Muller rightly warns, it will be to convert all of us by the Synod of Synodality on 2024 to some issues that would have shocked, horrified, and scandalized every every pope, every saint in the history of the church. Thank you very much. Our next speaker is from France. Jean Smits is a French journalist who has worked for years to support the faith in France. She's now the editor-in-chief of Réformation TV. She is, uh, we're very privileged at LifeSite News to have her as a contributor, uh, as she has been for many years now. And uh, a great defender of faith, a fearless defender of faith, and uh, it's my privilege now to introduce to you, John Smiths. Thank you, Jenny. Whatever the conclusion and the open questions 
that have emerged from the first leg of the synod on synodality, I believe one thing must be made very clear before we start. This is not a synod. From the very fact that lay people have been given the vote, it cannot pretend to have any form of authority or relevance. It is not a synod of bishops. So even if it asks, now it's implicitly, but it will be explicitly perhaps, even if it asks for revolutionary changes in doctrine or morals, it will mean exactly nothing. This is just worldly pressure on an institution that was established by Christ himself as a hierarchical communion, as a pyramid with authority at the top and lay people at the bottom. This is what is being turned around. The pyramid must be turned around, the Pope said himself, Pope Francis. Of course, this does not mean that there is no need to worry about the noises that are coming forth through this process. They have already inoculated the faithful with the idea that the church's teachings can change, that they can adapt to the world, making Christian life a lot easier as it forgets the reality of the straight and narrow path. Lay people are being asked to weigh in on the development of the doctrine of the church with due respect for the Holy Father. I don't believe that these lay people are actually in the proper conditions to be considered infallible in credendo, because this requires fidelity to the apostolic tradition and the infallible magisterium. When you read the document of the Synod, you get the impression that it's baptism that brings this in, in, in infallibility in credendo, which in fact does exist, but only in certain conditions which have now, now been swept aside. And I believe the timing of all this seems to be the worst possible to start relying on the people, because religious ignorance and faulty catechesis, which are so evident in the, service, in the surveys of Catholic beliefs the world over, have left so many clueless about many truths of their faith, of our faith. One of the key words of this synod, which is not a synod, is <laughs> pastoral. But how can our pastors be pastoral when there is so much vagueness about what our Lord taught us? and wants from us. Whatever the outcome of this assembly, whether or not it makes spectacular changes on hot-button issues that everyone has been talking about, I don't think that's the most important part. Although in the, in the Synod, you have a phrase about how people, how pastors have a diverse approach to, to, to people who have different, let's say, sexual orientations. It's all very wrapped up. But the idea seems to be that even in this document, there are very many doors that have been set wide open. But what it really is about, I think, is to bring about a profound revolution in the perception of what the church is and how it functions. 
And this is what Brother Alois, he is the prior of Tézé. Tézé, a community where you have uh, Catholics, but also other Christian faiths represented. And he himself, who is a Catholic, is soon to be uh, replaced by an Anglican. Uh, he was at the Synod, and he said, what, is, what this is about is a new way of being church. It's about change. It's about, if you change the church, well, in a way, you're trying to change the revelation, because the church is the fruit of the revelation. The Synod has presented to the whole world an image of an equalitarian, egalitarian institution, where all, even non-Catholics, all those who openly oppose the morals taught by the church, but who want to be inside without conversion, they all have an equal right to speak, and some of them even to vote. They are visually on the same level as our cardinals, bishops, and priests. And in the document, that's what it says. One of the main points of the synod is those little tables where you saw all these people talking together. That's the new church. Well, no, our church is a hierarchy. And this, this revolution, I'd say, has already taken place, in any case, in the face of the world. It is a revolution that is fundamentally abandoning the definition of the church as the mystical body of Christ, in order to see it rather as the people of God, a new church. And this was, this is no, nothing new actually, because the Second Vatican Council was all about that. It was all about making the church welcome more, more widely people who were not, uh, who, who, who were not uh, baptized as Catholics and who were not living as Catholics and to, to, to choose instead the people of God. This how, I think the people of God is really, those are the, the words that will really define this whole synod. The church is becoming more concerned with social justice, <clears throat> preserving the common home, and including everyone. Todos, todos, todos. We've heard it all the time. And the church is now preoccupied with that rather than the salvation of souls. In the whole document, salvation is mentioned only once. And it's not even about eternal life. We're talking about the kingdom of God, where all will be in Christ. Of course, uh, where do you leave hell? <laughs> this is the theology of the people in action. The theology of the people is the Argentinian variant of liberation theology, as shared and promoted by Pope Francis, and it's coming to its climax in the church. It is present in all these documents. It is thankfully not present in any dogma proclaimed by Pope Francis. I mean, the heart of the institution has not been touched, but we're in, a, we're in bad shape. Because of its practical consequences, this non-synod will certainly require clarification in the light of tradition. And we are ready for that fight. Thank you. We have heard from Uganda, from America, from France, and now it's my pleasure to introduce to you from England, from the UK, James Bogle, 
a barrister in England who was also the head of Una Voce, the organization which promotes the traditional Latin Mass. And he has been a fighter for tradition in the UK and around the world for many, many years. Please welcome Jamie Bowman. Well, thank you very much indeed, John Henry, for inviting me to speak. And <clears throat> I'd first like to um, echo some of the comments that Michael Matt has made and, and to thank Mike for his faithful testimony over many, many years. I'm also pleased to see uh, Madame Michello here from uh, Uganda, the home of the Ugandan martyrs, who son Charles Luanga and his companions who declined to be forced into perversion of the sort that's been discussed just over here in the Synod. And he was accompanied even by Anglican martyrs yes, yes. and uh, some later Anglican martyrs like Archbishop Janani Luan. No, yeah. And please send our regards to the Kabaka, Kimatebi. Okay. We are witnessing a, a direct infiltration of the church by what can only be called an alien spirit and at the highest levels. Although the church can never be defeated, evil can cause immense confusion amongst the faithful. And let us not forget the loss of souls. And that is what we are witnessing in our time. It is our duty to defend orthodoxy, just as did the great medieval English bishop, Robert Grosstest, when he was faced with evil at the highest levels of the church. And as did St. Paul when he opposed St. Peter to his face. To echo what Madam Smith said, the Synod on Synodality is not an exercise of the authentic magisterium of the church, nor of the magisterium at all. It is a worthless fraud. It is a failed attempt to emulate that clever device borrowed from Marxist political agitators in which the agenda, meetings, speeches, and eventual outcome are all carefully stage managed so as to achieve a prearranged and manipulated result. It's a well-trodden path, ladies and gentlemen. The Synod has nothing whatever to do with consultation of the faithful any more than those Marxist meetings. All with the truth, all the good of the church, but everything to do with manipulation, control, and I'm afraid, in some cases, outright lies. This kind of manipulation was tried in the Church of England. I know this, I'm a convert from the Church of England. Although it succeeded in obtaining the manipulator's aims, for example, lay control of the church, women deacons, priestesses, it failed dismally at the pastoral level. Most Anglican churches today are now virtually empty. But this Roman synod on synodality has not even been successful on its own terms. The participants quickly grew bored with the aimless and pointless round of discussions. Nothing has been concretely decided. It has been four weeks of time-wasting circularity. Sorry to have to say. But, as Michael Mack rightly pointed out, that will not stop the manipulators from continuing to try to impose error upon all of us. 
But the lesson ought to be clear. The synodal fraud, for that I'm afraid is what it is, leads only to empty churches. Indeed, that I venture to suggest has been the principal theme of this pontificate. The more that fraud and falsehood have been imposed, the more the faithful either leave the church altogether, or if they discover it in time, they begin going to the traditional Roman rite of mass, where they will hear and imbibe the full Catholic faith and not the synodal fraud. Ironically, therefore, Pope Francis has probably been the best recruiting sergeant for the traditional Roman rite of mass. The more he favours fraud and embraces perverts, paedophiles and clerical predators like Father Marco Rupnik, the more the faithful will turn away from him. That, ladies and gentlemen, I suggest to you, is the real lesson of this dismally failed synod. Thank you very much. And so now it's my pleasure to introduce to you Alice Munchiri. She's from Kenya. She is the coordinator for the Catholic MPs uh, Spiritual Support Initiative in Kenya and uh, an amazing worker for the faith in Kenya, very much coordinating the MPs there in terms of their defense of life and family in the midst of this crucial time. Please welcome Alice Munchi. I'll start giving, uh, by giving a small background of, of what is happening in Africa, because in Africa, not only the church is growing very, very rapidly, but is more vibrant, awake, and a lot more than ever before because of uh, shrinking religious freedoms, but more so because of the attack on the family, the institution of the family and the children. The current deliberate push for same-sex unions poses the greatest threat to the dignity of life and sanctity of marriage that we have ever witnessed. And the African church has remained a mother and a teacher. And we really appreciate our, our church fathers in Africa, very close to us, their children, and encouraging us to remain firm in the truth of Christ, his teachings, and to try the best we can from the family levels to education and to the larger society, not to conform to the demands and the trends of the world. On the attack on the institution of marriage and the push for homosexuality, we base our arguments and push back on the Holy Scriptures, the magisterium of the church and the tradition. And we Christians still and we continue to believe that God created man and woman, called them to a special sharing of his love and power to be procreators of human life. And he blessed them just as he had created them biologically as a man and a woman. And he said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And while Genesis, Genesis teaches us about man and woman as they were created in the image of God, this is the word that is being undermined by those who are pushing and condoning homosexuality. 
We are currently witnessing the deliberate effort to negate the truth of the scriptures, the Catholic social teachings of, on marriage and life, the law of nature, and the roles as designed by God for both men and women as he created them. And we believe and we are propagating that any act of against the scriptures, the traditional teachings of the church, and against ethical science is nothing but an abomination. By nature and in reference to the holy scriptures which were brought to us by the same institutions that are telling us there might not be true that we have our freedoms to negate this, the holy scriptures. And the scriptures and the teachings of the church are clear that a man should never sleep with another man. And it's, it's not, the scriptures are not apologetic on that. And this is sinful and apologetic, it's very, very sinful and a prohibition. And our belief is any acts of homosexuality is an open contempt to the word of God and his order of life. It's an act of uh, contempt and only it's only the highest, we call it the highest level of disobedience. The first command that God gave to man, be fruitful, fill the earth, subdue it. And in Africa, we are also alive to the fact that acts of homosexuality are being and will continue to be used as a population control and deduction uh, strategy. And to this, after many years of interaction and long experience of old and new traditions in different diverse situations, the church has been named as an expert in all these matters. Sadly, the same church is going a different direction. Christians in Africa and indeed the whole world believe that church is still the mother and teacher and as such, as a teacher, she should be capable of teaching the truth of Christ and he has that, the, the, she has that authority, speaking without fear on any immoral behaviors, particularly those that are currently being termed as human rights, when they are basically, even a child knows, is a human wrong, even from the law of nature. Africa, we are calling upon the church not to start proclaiming the moral norm on sexuality and interpretation on teachings of Christ with the truth. And whereas there might be need to respect conscience of the people and guide them. The church also adds that the conscience should be well educated in order to rightfully make the right choices, which are according to the word of God. And here the church is also called to faithfully fulfill its duty to teach the truth through faith, reason, and science. And we experience a very, very disturbing contradiction that before Christianity, in Africa we had our way of worship. We believed in a supreme God. And then the missionaries came, we had our values, and the only thing that Christianity did was to affirm what we believed in. We believed in a man and woman relationship, biologically so. We believed in the dignity of life, and preservation of life from birth to a natural death. But now the same same institutions that brought the scriptures, that brought the reality of Christ the Savior, 
Are the same ones now telling us, no, it shouldn't have been this, it should be something that is very, very ungodly. And that leaves us with a lot of confusion. If we recall or make reference to the Second Vatican Council, the Church Fathers sought to understand the nature of the Church and her relations in the world, and surprising, not very surprisingly, Pope John Paul II, now saint, affirmed that the truths of Christianity never change. And this is what we need to uphold and also speak to the, those who are behind the synodality. It is such a confusing moment that all these things are being imposed, in Africa particularly, in the name of being supported through donations. And the donations are sometimes even coming through the church. That if you do not conform to this, you cannot do this. You can travel to, to Europe, you can travel to, to America and other places. And therefore, we, the church, must remain because the other side is not the church. That's not the church that Christ left. We must remain faithful to Christ's teachings. For if we do not do this and attempt to alter the teachings of Christ, we will be unfaithful to, to Christ. And that will never be the Roman Catholic Church. In conclusion, we don't uh, like to urge the church to work with experts of goodwill to shed light on aspects of homosexuality and gender ideologies. Because out of ignorance, even the clergy in Africa will be convinced that this is normal for a girl to say that they're a girl but trapped in a boy's body. And that is the approach that is being made even through the churches. So we request that the church be humble enough to work with experts and researchers, shed light on all the things that are infiltrating through the synodality, the tax tactics and incentives being used to lower victims of, of uh, homosexuality. Because most of these people will be victims that have been brainwashed and they have been made to believe that indeed these are the trends and the world is moving into this direction. Also, research to be done on the commercial gains by the promoters of this perversion because there's a commercial aspect to it and reach out to victims to help them come back to the normal Christ-inspired living rather than blessing same-sex unions, which is a sin, they need to be called to the church and be helped. As human beings, they can be blessed, but the church should not bless a sin or condone it. And we need to, uh, to be assisted to reject all donations and entities from entities that promote homosexuality in one way or another. Because this is the entry point for Africa. And if the people in the West can actually uh, open up, these are the institutions that are promoting homosexuality in Africa, we'll be able to reject because some of the donations are coming in the name of even promotion of, uh, of catechism. And again, to conclude, the church is still our mother and our teacher. We need to pray, even for the Holy Father. Someone told me that it is such a noble uh, thing to pray for the Holy Father because his decisions, his pronouncements influence what the world thinks. And God knows how many people may lose their souls because they listened to what is coming from the Vatican. And I will conclude with a verse. When the missionaries brought uh, catechism to us, the first thing we were taught as small children is that God created us to know him, to love him 
to serve him and ultimately to live with him in heaven. And St. Paul tells us, men who sleep with men, women who sleep with women, fornicators, people who commit sexual sins, will never see the kingdom of God. And this is what now, the same same institutions that taught us this, are telling us that even if you go homosexual, you can still go to heaven, or maybe they are negating there is a heaven anyway. So thank you very much. So we've heard from Catholic leaders from all over the world, from Uganda, from America, from France, from the UK, from Kenya. Now we want to hear also from the legal perspective, much of what has gone on over the last uh, decade and even earlier in the church had to do with abuse, sexual abuse on the part of clergy reaction to it. And while there has been great talk of you know, healing and, and really doing things the right way, let's take the word from an expert. Elizabeth Yor, she's a lawyer from America, she's the founder of Your Children, and she's worked with clergy sexual abuse victims and has seen the devastation, but also seen and recognized what has actually happened with regard to the victims and the perpetrators. It's my great honor to introduce to you Elizabeth Yuar. Thank you, John Henry. It's a pleasure to be with you um, here now that we've seen the uh, first session of Woodstock on the Tiber. Um, it is uh, this incessant delivering of visitors, James Martin, Whoopi Goldberg, New Ways Ministry team. Um, we are witnessing a revolution in the church, as Michael said. The subterfuge is for a specific purpose because the documents and discussions are the blueprint for the one world religion, a religion that only listens and only dialogues, a religion with no sin, no purpose, no beliefs, and no Jesus Christ, only the God of the globalist elites. I've been working in clergy sex abuse for 35 years, not only interviewing countless victims, but also providing child protection policies for major dioceses. So it is especially difficult for me to have endured a decade, more than a decade of this pontificate. And this papacy, in my opinion, operates a protection racket for predators. And on March 13th, I, like the rest of the world, watched as Jorge Bergoglio ascended to the Lojo as Francis. I also noticed with disturbing alarm that joining him on the loggia was none other than the most notorious Cardinal Daniels, whose ignominious cover-up of a fellow bishop's sexual predation caused enormous scandal to the church in Europe and to pain to the victim. But with his presence on the loggia may have been incidental, but I don't believe that. He further scandalized the world with his personal papal appointment to the Synod on the family of all places. That was intentional. That was insulting. And that was symptomatic of the future of this Francis papacy. Daniels was the first of many priests, bishops, and cardinals to enjoy the infamous 
Bergoglio bodyguard. And this synod on synodality in both its underlying document and the final synodal statement speaks interminably of listening and dialoguing with the world. Yet the papacy by its actions has repeatedly insulted and ignored clergy abuse victims who have been personally snubbed and dismissed by Francis. Typically and disturbingly, Francis continues to deal with them as he always does by imposing his St. Gallen Mafia Omerta of silence. Yet he deploy, deploys his synodal PR machine to churn out hypocritical talking points in hopes of anesthetizing our memory about his own catastrophic record on clergy sex abuse. And even on section 16.4 of the final synodal document, it has the gall to say that the church needs to listen with special care and sensitivity to the voices of the victims of sexual, spiritual, and economic abuse by clergy members. Authentic listening, it says, is a fundamental element of the journey, the journey towards healing, repentance, justice, and reconciliation. This prompts the crucial and obvious question, has this pontificate authentically listened with special care to the voices of victims of clergy sex abuse? The answer is a resounding no. And curiously, Francis has a weakness for abusing celebrity priests and bishops and protecting celebrity priests and bishops. They earn a papal privilege and dispensation for consequences, which is absolutely staggering. Let me just mention a few. Ted McCarrick, Father Marco Rupnik, Bishop Zancada, Father Inzoli, Cardinal Cantoni, Cardinal Fernandez, Cardinal Murphy O'Connor, in Francis's world, mercy trumps justice. And despite his endless chatter about the preference for the poor, celebrity transcends integrity. This pattern is shockingly obvious as he has a blind spot for predators who are his friends and famous. Again, the final synodal document talks about opening and listening to those who have suffered abuse. And it goes on to state that addressing the structural conditions that abetted such abuse remains before us and requires concrete gestures of penitence. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the structural condition that abets the cover-up of abuse is Francis himself. After 50 years of studies, reports, scandals, it is demeaning and frankly insulting that the Synodal Fathers peddled this myth of the need to further study the clergy abuse problem. While Francis clearly hears the cry of Mother Earth, he is deaf to the cries of clergy abuse victims. While the purported rising of the oceans tug at his heart, his stone-cold, heartless, dismissiveness of abused, consecrated nuns is chilling. 
We know when he was Bishop of, of Buenos Aires, he told Rabbi Skorka, sexual abuse never happened in his diocese. Well, little has changed in the last nearly 11 years. The Legion of Buenos Aires clergy sex abuse victims assert strongly that Bishop and Cardinal Bergoglio refused to meet with them and did nothing to stem clergy abuse in his diocese. He was busy protecting Father, the popular Father Julio Grassi, the TV star, and in the words of Father Grassi, the predator himself, Bergoglio was holding his hand throughout the criminal trial and appeal. Grassi's conviction for child molestation was upheld, and Bergoglio never apologized to the victims, nor did he explain why he funded a secret 400-page unauthorized appeal for Father Grassi following his conviction. Look, the list goes on and on. The human cry of the victims of Chilean father Karadima and his protector bishop, Bishop Barros, who witnessed Karadima's abuse. But there's more. The celebrity priest, Father Mercedes Inzoli, who was defrocked by benefit, and in 2014, Francis overruled the sentence of defrocking and instead reduced Inzoli to a life of penance and prayer. And Inzoli was later found guilty by an Italian court of eight counts of sexual abuse of children. Where is the listening and dialoguing with the Inzoli child victims? And under the title of what I can only call Resurrecting Predators, Francis has made quite a name for himself. Argentine Bishop Zanqueta, who was promoted by Francis as one of his first actions to Bishop of Oran, Argentina in 2013. And despite ongoing complaints from Zanqueta by seminarians who were abused by Zanqueta, Francis sided with the bishop. And then when the doors started closing in on Zanqueta, he created, Francis created a prestigious position at APSA even though, even though Zanqueta was being investigated for financial improprieties in Argentina. Um, and Zanqueta earned a, a Vatican citizenship. Keep in mind that when the Zanqueta circus was happening in the Vatican, the McCarrick scandal was also occurring. And the same time, the Vatican Global Summit by the Bishops on Sex Abuse Accountability was also occurring. Yet the most infamous, of course, of Francis's protected celebrities is the notorious Cardinal Ted McCarrick, whose status as a serial sexual predator is, was documented extensively in the files of the Vatican, who was suddenly resurrected from sanctions imposed by Benedict. And from 2013, when he was blessed as an envoy to China by Francis, until 2017, for nearly five years, McCarrick traveled globally on behalf of Catholic Relief Services and the USCCB and the Vatican. 
During this time of his immaculate resurrection by Francis, McCarrick wrote letters to Francis, was given, was allowed to give recommendations for United States bishop appointments, and was thanked profusely by Perelman, Archbishop Eshu, and Francis for his work. And in response to questioning about the allegations of McCarrick, Francis again responded in his classic omerta silence that he knew nothing. And finally, when the walls were closing in, he removed McCarrick from public ministry. Finally, the most recent of all the papal predatory protectees is the celebrity Jesuit Marco Rupnik. And as for the behavior of Pope Francis in this salacious and monstrous scandal, one can only opine, oh, what a tangled web he weaves when first he sets out to deceive. Francis's culpability is indefensible. His complicity is insidious, and his conduct in this scandal is unconscionable. The cry of the victim sisters is ignored by Francis, and their pain is intensified by the personal intervention by Francis to co-op this investigation. Again, the final synodal report says, quote, the abuse of women signals a problem with the exercise of authority and demands decisive and appropriate intervention. Yet the decisive action on Rupnik's insidious abuse was demanded a long time ago, and it's been grossly delayed. Apparently, the only appropriate intervention has been made on behalf of Rupnik by Francis, who is obviously enthralled with this church artist of dark arts. As we know, the Rupnik scandal was dominating the news cycle during the Synod and underscores the hideous hypocrisy indifference and cruelty to sex abuse victims. Even though the Jesuits apparently um, recommended uh, that he, would, he is released from all ministry work, the Superior General of the Jesuits disclosed that Rupnik had incurred an automatic excommunication for sacramentally absolving a woman with whom he had sinned against. In March, though, of 2020, Pope Francis approved of Father Rupnik preaching a Lenten homily at the Vatican. Imagine, if you will, what those non-victims felt. In the interim, many victims have stepped forward against Rupnik. A media firestorm of outrage and criticism has been unleashed when it was reported that Rupnik incredibly was placed back into ministry which underscores the prevailing theme of this papacy when dealing with clerical sex abusers. And that is, if it bleeds, it leads, and only then will Francis heed. The questions regarding this scandal continue to mul multiply. What role did Francis play? in the sudden lifting of the Rupnik excommunication. 
Did Francis order the initial statute of limitations to be imposed, thus ending criminal charges? At what point did Francis learn of the allegations of Rupnik's predation on the nuns? And when is Francis going to meet with the victim nuns, especially since he enjoyed a very friendly meeting and photo op with Maria Capitella, the current director of Rupnik's Aleti Center? Did Francis have a role in the Diocese of Rome's recent statement praising Rupnik and stating that the center has a healthy community that is free of any serious issues? This scandal highlights the stubborn and mind-boggling refusal of Francis to listen, to dialogue, and protect vulnerable victim nuns, and to ignore the recommendations of the CDF and the Jesuit order, who conducted thorough investigations. Shockingly, the Senate's final document ob obliquely addresses this. The cases of various kinds of consecrated persons, particularly women, signal a problem in the exercise of authority and decisive appropriate actions. It begs the question, did the Senado fathers not understand or appreciate the rank hypocrisy of this statement vis-a-vis -vis the Rupnik case? Where are the outraged voices of the progressive synodal sisters. Why didn't the Francis appointed voting activist synodal nuns demand action and accountability for their fellow consecrated sisters in the faith? And when will Francis exercise his authority and require decisive and appropriate action for the vulnerable and suffering sisters who were the victims. Why doesn't the listening and dialoguing Francis speak out about this tragedy? The rank ne nepotism of Francis drags on as his close Argentine friend, Victor Tucho Fernandez, the man who's in charge of the clergy sex abuse cases, the man who was roundly criticized by Argentines for his handling of, again, a high-profile sex abuse case, whose victims were children. He receives the prestigious post as the head of the DDF and the cardinal hat from Francis. Fernandez attempted blatant and obvious misdirection play by blaming clericalism as the cause of the clergy sex abuse cases is outrageous. Based on my experience with countless clergy sex abuse, the depravity of sex abuse in the class in the Catholic Church is born out of a pattern of criminal predation that has nothing to do with clericalism. Rather, the statistics overwhelmingly point to homosexual priests who groom young boys with alcohol, with drugs, with homosexual porn, with guilt and blackmail into the repeated sexual gratification of priests. Sexual gratification, not clericalism, is the motive, the drive, and the criminal pattern. In the United States, eight, over 80% of the predation was priests 
on male victims. These statistics are irrefutable, and the synodal acceleration and advocacy and imposition of the LGBTQIA++ agenda and inclusion into the Catholic Church will rapidly increase the dangers of predation, not lessen them. What happened to the lessons of the last 50 years? Francis has learned nothing in the last decade of cascading sexual abuse cases laid directly at his feet. With the stroke of his pen, the Rupniks, the McCarricks, and all of his celebrity pals could have been gone, never to have preyed on children or vulnerable adults, never to have been allowed to paint church-commissioned artwork, never to have been allowed to conduct a papal-supported homily, never to have had access to the confession, and never to have negotiated a disastrous secret deal with the communist Chinese that destroyed the underground Catholic Church. Well, Cardinal Crack said that what emerges from the Synod is a church that reaches out, that has created spaces for everyone, making room for everyone so that no one feels excluded, so that no one feels excluded in his or her home. Well, that quote should have been footnoted with the caveat, except for clergy abuse victims. Saying so doesn't make it so. No matter how many times the Synod document states and invokes listening 40 times, dialogue 28 times, journey 29 times, there exists no mention of the important word, the crucial word, essential to root out predation. The failure of this word is intentional, it's strategic, and it's deliberate. That word captures the decade-long predation of clerical abuse. That word encapsulates the ongoing protection racket at the highest level of the church. The word that they don't want to acknowledge. The word that they don't want to dialogue about. That word is evil. You cannot fight an opponent if you do not identify it. Ignoring evil will make it flourish. Suppressing evil will force it to flourish. This is the miserable and scandalous legacy of the Francis Papacy. Thank you. So we've heard now from Uganda, from America, from France, from the UK, from Kenya, from clergy abuse victims in their eloquent spokeswomen. I would like to bring you a message from Canada, from LifeSite News. As Michael said, in the Synod documents, and many of the people pontificating on what's going on in America are saying, oh, see, the Synod wasn't that bad, it wasn't that bad. Well, let me tell you, actually, Pope Francis held a Synod of his own. He did an Uber Synod. And in his Uber Synod, it's been going on since the Synod was announced. You notice from America, the American bishops selected five rather conservative bishops, 
to be the representatives of the Synod. But what did Pope Francis do? Well, he selected different picks of his own from America. He selected Cardinal Supich, Cardinal Gregory, Cardinal McElroy, Cardinal Tobin, all of whom, by the way, he named as cardinals knowing of their promotion of the LGBT agenda. Maybe despite it, no, but probably because of it. And in case you wondered, oh, maybe they were there the cardinals anyway, that's why they were promoted, just to make sure that everyone knew exactly his own agenda, he also appointed the number one promoter of homosexuality in the church in America, Father James Martin, Jesuit, leaving no doubt whatsoever as to his own agenda. And not only that, during the time of the synod, the Pope continued to have his own uber synod by meeting first with Whoopi Goldberg. Whoopi Goldberg's meeting with the Holy Father, we learned about through Vatican television, which aired her wonderful praise for the Pope's support of the LGBT agenda. And you learned of it through Vatican News itself. But it wasn't only Whoopi Goldberg, it was also Sister Janine Gremmett. Yes, the same Sister Janine Gremmett, who was sanctioned under John Paul II and Benedict for her heretical work with LGBT, promotion of the sin of sodomy that leads people to hell. Everybody thinks, oh, but we're being inclusive and loving. No, we're not. The scriptures tell us exactly what we're being. When we allow for these behaviors which damn people to hell, we're being hateful. That's true hate. The parent who allows their child to enter into an activity that's going to cause them harm, grave harm, is not doing the child a favor. If you have a child, and I've had many, I've had eight children, and many of them boys, six of them boys, and you all know boys like to do dangerous things, if I wanted to be an inclusive or parent that allows for inclusive activity, but my boys love to play on the side of the cliff, would I be loving and allowing them to do that? No. Everyone would know, even if I had to drag them away and they would kick and scream and say, Daddy, Daddy, we want to play there, leave it. Because I love you, I must take you away from the edge because I know that's dangerous. You could fall and you could die. That's the problem with our so-called loving attitude toward accepting and blessing of the very activity that will lead to their eternal damnation. That's not love. It's not love to self tell someone, oh yes, it's fine the way you are. That's the way God created you. Continue in it, come anyway to Holy Communion. I was stunned because the very man that Pope Francis named to be Cardinal, Cardinal Blaise Supic, I was with him here in the Salastampa, in the press office, the Holy See, when Cardinal Supic, then Bishop, or Archbishop Supic, was talking about giving Holy Communion to divorced and remarried Catholics who were not practicing celibacy who were engaged sexually with one another, even though they did not have an annulment. And he said, the minister of Holy Communion must give them Holy Communion. So I asked him, because I was at the press conference, I asked him, well, what about a gay couple? 
if they feel in conscience that they should receive Holy Communion, should they then receive Holy Communion too? He responded, gays are people too. So the minister of Holy Communion must give them communion. But what did the scriptures say about giving Holy Communion to those who are undisposed, to those who are living a life that is incongruous with the gospel? St. Paul teaches very clearly in Corinthians, they eat and drink condemnation to themselves. So it is no love for them. It is no kindness to them. It is harm to them. He did not only meet with Bobby Goldberg and Janine Gramic, he also met with the global network of rainbow Catholics, the leaders of all these various LGBT pushing groups in the Catholic Church around the world. Oh yes, the Pope held his own uber synod in which he pronounced on homosexuality. Because right at the outset of the synod, he answered the question of the dubia, the new dubia of the five cardinals, which they set out because of the grave confusion in the church, started by Francis, carried on by the bishops first in Belgium. And we learned from Cardinal de Kessel in Belgium that while they were doing their same-sex blessings, Pope Francis is fine with it. And then we learned in the vote in Germany where the German synod voted. I remember prelates telling me before, oh, the numbers of those prelates in favor of the LGBT agenda are very great, even more than 50%. And I would think to myself, no, it can't be that high. And then came the clarifying vote in Germany. It was 38 bishops in favor of blessing same-sex unions, eight opposed 11 abstentions. With those numbers, I was wrong. It wasn't only 50%, it was much, much more. So the crisis in the church on this issue is grave. And in the midst of that crisis came the questions of the Dubia Cardinals sent in the summer but not published till now. Sent in the summer and hoping for clarification from Pope Francis on this question of blessing of same-sex unions. And he gave an answer. The cardinals, God bless them, didn't publish the answer because who would want to publish heresy? And yet that's one of the ancient methods of understanding church teaching where the prelates of the church ask the Holy Father, what's going on here? And then you get an answer. When they submitted to the public that they had asked the questions and didn't get clear answers from the Pope, what happened? Cardinal Fernandez, the new head of the CDF, of the DDF now, of the Doctrine of Faith. By the way, there's another scandal in the same direction. He, too, believes in the erroneous fallacy of promoting the LGBT agenda, and he's made the head of the Doctrine of Faith. The same position that Cardinal Ratzinger himself held. And as Sandra Magister noted, Pope Francis waited. He waited to give that post to him. He wouldn't dare do it while Benedict was still alive. Mm -hmm. And here, the Vatican itself publishes the Pope's responses to the dubia, and in them we find what? We find the ultimate confusion, the statement that Bishop Schneider characterized as the art of confusion. 
a statement which opened the door officially from the Pope to this blessing, not of marriage, but of homosexual person or persons. So what's happening around the world? If we go to Belgium, what's happening? If we go to Germany, what's happening? A homosexual couple is coming to the church and asking for a blessing. And their friends are coming, and the priest comes out in his vestments. Not a marriage. No, 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 no. But a blessing of homosexual union. And they come there with their friends, and their friends fill the aisles. And they come there in their two tuxedos. And the priest gives them a blessing. After which they process out with music, of course. And then they go and have their celebration. But it's not, it's not a marriage. It's the blessing of civil union only. And it's going on in your Catholic churches. And there is mass, mass confusion. How can we say that this is not a new church? How can we say that this is the church of Jesus Christ? This is the formation of a false church and we're watching it before our very eyes. Oh, and by the way, we do not hate Pope Francis. No. We love him. At LifeSite, we have been praying for Pope Francis every day for years. After Bishop Schneider prayed openly for the conversion of Pope Francis, we started to pray for the conversion of Pope Francis. We do so openly because indeed he needs a conversion. Because remember in Matthew 18, 6, our Lord makes a warning to the apostles and the teachers of the faith. And he says, it would be better for you to have a millstone tied about your neck and be cast into the sea rather than you scandalize the little ones. And I can tell you from my own experience as a father of eight children, children who have themselves been confused and scandalized by Pope Francis, that he is indeed confusing the little ones. St. Paul in Galatians says, even if I, speaking as the apostles of the Gentiles, even if I, or an angel from heaven, were to come and give you a different gospel, let him be condemned, let him be anathema. And that is indeed what we are having now. Through this last 10, almost 11 years of the pontificate of Francis, we have had presented to us a different gospel which from the pages of Holy Writ, of Holy Scripture, is condemned. So please join us in praying the conversion of Pope Francis, whom we love and whom we wish to avoid the punishments laid out for those who confuse the little ones. And now if there are any questions for the speakers, for the presenters, we're most happy to take them. Um, and uh, I will leave it to um, if, if perhaps you could mention which agency you're with, your name and your agency, and then ask the questions. They can be asked of individual members or just a general question, which would be taken up by any of the speakers. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, to the panelists, my name is, my name is Tobias Nauruki uh, from Captain TV. I would like to ask two questions to the panelists. Number one, what role do African voices play in shaping the future direction of the Catholic Church? And how can their concerns and perspectives be effectively integrated into the synodal process? 
Number two question to all the panelists. How can the concept of synodality, now that the final document is already out, be implemented while re respecting though the diverse cultural and religious beliefs and values for the African nations and the whole world? And are there implications? And if yes, they are, how can we as faithfuls be able to harmonize all this to align our beliefs in the biblical teachings today and in the past? Thank you. Just last week, uh, one of my members, because apart from being the, the, the pro-life caucus chairperson in Parliament of Uganda, I'm also the, the chairperson of the Catholic Parliamentary Association, and we are the biggest uh, group in the Parliament of Uganda. I've held this position now for seven years. Um, just before I came to Rome on Saturday, we held a retreat where we did a re-election, and I was actually re-elected unopposed, which gives me more burden. And one of my members actually got me in the corridors of parliament and asked me, Chairperson, are you following what is happening in Vatican regarding the Synod? And uh, I said, no, don't worry about it, everything is okay. You know, we are the rock, We our church is founded on, you know, we are the rock, nothing can ever happen to, you know, our Catholic church. No, we are different. We are the Catholic Church, remember, nothing can happen to us. And then when I started reading about what was happening, I felt embarrassed and I went to her and apologized. I said, please forgive me. I think we need to go on our knees and really pray for this process. And I think the best for me, what I have done, is to deploy myself and a few team to really, really pray. Just like Ali said, pray for the Pope, pray for the Cardinals, pray for the bishops, Pray for the priests. Our lady, when she appeared in Majigori, instructed these people that please pray for these priests. Pray for them that they may lead people closer to me. And that is why, for us as, as in Uganda, what we have decided to do, we are a group of about 1,000 people who come from all over the country. We have started on the 6th of October, we started what we call the 54 days, seven sorrows rosary. And we are praying specifically for our priests, bishops, and most importantly, the Pope. You know, all these statements have been coming up. And you know, just rubbish and say, no, 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 no. You know, the Pope has been misunderstood. No, there's no way the Pope can say that. No, no, it can't happen. And I was really living in denial until one day I just sat down and I said, you know what? The Pope and the clergy in the church needs prayers. And I think I can just read this prayer. It's a very beautiful prayer. I read it to my archdiocese, to my bishop, archbishop, and you know what he told me? He said, you know what, Lucy, give me this prayer. I want to publish it so that it is distributed to all the Christians to pray for the priests more urgently. They need the prayers more urgently than before. And the prayer goes like this. Oh, Blessed Mother, I unite my heart to yours and offer this rosary, the seven sorrows rosary, for priests for their growth in holiness. Obedience to the magisterium, 
boldness in the proclamation of the gospel and the profound love for the people of God. May all priests humbly lead the souls entrusted into their care into an intimate relationship with the Lord. If every Christian around the world can make this prayer every day for our priests, I am sure whatsoever devil that is entering into the minds of our bishops or even our Pope, I am sure a lot will change. I have come here to talk about this. All of us must speak out and say this is reach out to your priest, reach out to your bishops. After I received a message when I told them I am coming here, and one of them said, reach out to your bishop, talk to one or two bishops, let them be on your side and let them feel how you let them feel how exactly you feel, how disappointed you are. Let one or two bishops, you know, you know, understand how you feel. And I think this is exactly what I want to do. Apart from just praying, it's not just because I know prayer is powerful. And I can tell you, like I started by reading, whatsoever is, is broken, is, 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 is that's uh, the Bible that I read, Whatsoever is set loose in heaven is also loosed on what? On us. And that is the power of prayer. Let me just uh, end here. Thank you. Uh, like I said, the church in Africa, particularly the Catholic Church, is now mature. And that's why we are having quite a big uh, impact in reversal evangelization. We have enough clergy coming back. How can Africa make an impact in an effort to reverse what is happening now? What we need in Africa is information and economic independence. What we are speaking here is not known even to the priests in Africa. The bishops know, and sometimes they do not know how to break this very, very sad news that is coming from the Vatican because you may scatter the young souls and the young people who are quite young, uh, spiritually speaking. And when we have this information, we are able to educate our people. Because in Africa, it's coming in a very, very cunning manner. It is coming through comprehensive sexuality education. That's the first tool. And the recruitment in Africa is dangerous because it's beginning at age eight, through the comprehensive sexuality education. And how is the comprehensive sexuality education coming in? Through UN agencies mm -hmm. and non-governmental organizations. I live not very far from the biggest slum in Africa, Kibera slum. There are over a thousand NGOs working there, and it's the biggest slum in Africa, and they're used as guinea pigs. And the people who are used as models are the celebrities. So why would a young child, 12, 15 years, who is living in poverty, not be attracted to a celebrity who is living high, only to realize the reason why they're doing that is because they are being paid by someone. My spiritual director, may he rest in peace, taught us that in every homosexual relationship, there's a prey and a predator. And the prey is the poor. Our university students, during the last general elections, I had them uh, kind of intimidating and blackmailing presidential candidates that if you don't do this, in our language sounds very, very vulgar. We, we will continue to bend because we need money. They will continue being 
predicted upon by those who have money. Mm -hmm. Nobody is telling the Africans and the larger world that homosexuality is also a commercial venture. It comes with the gender ideologies, the trans uh, surgical operations. Who are the beneficiaries of these surgical operations? Who are the manufacturers of the hormones that men and women have to take for the rest of their lives? Who are the manufacturers of diapers that men will have to start using very, very soon because of the destruction of the anatomy? We love our bishops because now they are speaking about it in black and white only after they have received information from our Catholic lawyers, our Catholic doctors, their chairman ought to have been here, but he had some scheduled uh, Caesarean operations during this week. One bishop addressed a congregation of more than 4,000 Christians in his diocese. He's currently the chair for education. And in the native language where they were old and young and children told them even in the normal circumstances if you went to a, a gas station no matter how drunk you are no matter how much you are and ask the gas uh, the petrol station uh, attendant to fuel your car through the exhaust they will take you to the next mental hospital <laughs> i'll share that clip it's in the in the, in the native language from uh, the central kenya they will take you to a mental hospital and ask our young men in black and white, how can you be recruited to do things that even animals don't do? But when we say this, we are called homophobic. A parliamentarian from Kenya, having learned, and because Africa we share the same values, from the Ugandan parliament about their law against homosexuality. In Kenya, we have a bill coming up protect it's a family protection bill already he has been labeled homophobic his phone is hurt western embassies are calling him right left and center but he says it is okay for you to view homosexuality as your right and it's not it's perfect it's very very perfective but it's also my right to see homosexuality as a sin, a grave sin, and we are not hating the people, we are hating their sin, and they must be corrected. The church can welcome them, but not welcome them to live within the church in their sinfulness. And, and that is where Africans were saying, it is okay, we welcome them, but they must be converted. So Africa needs information that is scientific and also uh, anchored on the scriptures and the teachings of Christ and we also need independence economic independence the West will ensure that Africa is poor so that when these vices come we welcome them in the form of donor aid money is brought in for HIV and malaria but in need there's a big fraction a big percentage for us to accept homosexuality and promotion of LGBTQI. Otherwise, we do not receive funds, even for maternal health. Everything is being tied to LGBTQI rights and abortion. So, and with that, Africa will, will, will save the rest of the world. Pope John Paul said it several times that the future of humanity, the future of Christianity, and indeed the Catholic faith is in Africa. And that remains so. Thank you.
Thank you for your second question, which was about how uh, can this concept of synodality be implemented? I think we should approach this another way and say, how can it not be implemented? In the way, in saying that synodality is, uh, is in fact introducing democracy into the church, and the church is not a democracy. We turn to Jesus Christ, his revelation, the apostolic tradition, and I do believe we lay people have something to do with that. I'm sure that the answer to the problem will, be, will come from those who have the authority. It will come one day. But what we are supposed to do, what we are obliged to do as Catholic lay people is to be anchored, as you said, on the teaching of Christ, on, on, on the Holy Scripture, on the tradition of the Church, the apostolic tradition, and just say, look, this, all this is not true. We are not bringing in a democratic voice. We are recalling what the authorities should be recalling to us. And if we move into synodality, where everyone has an equal voice, there will be no answer. Thank you very much. Uh, I want to thank you all for coming, uh, especially to our speakers. And uh, as uh, members of the press might want to know, um, Rome Life Forum is, of course, taking place tomorrow and the next day. Bishop Strickland from Tyler, Texas, is uh, on his way here, as, uh, and Cardinal Muller will be speaking as well. And so uh, that is the activities of the next couple of days. There will be reports at LifeSite News. Um, and at the Remnant and other places. Uh, this press conference will be aired as well, um, and you can find the press statements over at LifeSite News. Thank you for all for joining us. Uh, God bless you, and maybe we can conclude, uh, since we're almost there, uh, with a prayer of the Angelus. Father Pius is here. Would you, would you lead us, please, Father? The angels have already declared unto me.